Tonight, uh, I have a message the Lord has laid on my heart, and I want you to be finding in your Bibles Psalm chapter 51. We're back in the Psalms, and uh, something the Lord has been speaking to me this week, and I believe it's something uh, for each and every one of us, those that are online, we always appreciate you joining us there as well and watching at a later date. Uh, Psalm 51, and we're going to read the first seven verses. If you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. If you've got it, say amen. amen. And this psalm begins with an inscription at the front. I'm going to read that as well. Psalm 51, beginning at verse 1, we're going to read down to verse 7. It says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba, verse 1, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I want to draw your attention to what it says in verse 1. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God. Verse 3 says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4, Against thee and thee only have I sinned. The title of the message tonight is Repenting in the Presence of God. You may be seated. Now, this Psalm 51, to many of you, will be an old familiar friend, uh, something that perhaps you've gone to many times. To others, it may be the first time that you've ever read it. It may be the first time that you're hearing it. Uh, it's a beautiful psalm, and for those, if it is new to you, you'll come to love it yourself as well, because it is a beautiful psalm. It is a psalm of David. Now, I want to begin by saying this, as I've said, of course, this is a beautiful psalm. It is a psalm of David, and it's a psalm about repentance and forgiveness of God. It shows us a man that's stricken by sin. As you read through this, you see that. It's a man that's overwhelmed by the weight of guilt, and he sees himself totally guilty in the sight of God. He sees himself without excuse and without remedy. He's grieving over the evil that he's done, and he's longing for the forgiveness of God. So what he does, because he knows God is a good God, he appeals to God on the basis of who God is. And with a broken and a contrite heart, he makes his appeal to God and receives that everlasting mercy and divine forgiveness of God. David wrote in a companion psalm of this, in Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, he said, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. 
It's a beautiful psalm. There's a, a bit of weight to this psalm as well as you're reading through it. You see the very seriousness of it. Now, before I get too far in this, I do want to give some background information. If this is a new psalm to you, I want to give you a little bit of information so we know the context in which this psalm was written. Uh, it's going to be found over in, in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. I'm not going to go through and read both those chapters, but I would encourage you to do it on your own time. I want to give you a summary of what happened and just pick out a few verses out of those two chapters, just so we can have a context of this passage of Scripture. And so you'll find that if you read in that, you'll discover that it said it was a time when kings go out to battle. It was a time when they would go out to battle, and Israel was in a war with the Ammonites, but David stayed home. Now, there's a whole other message that you could preach just on the fact that David was not where he should have been at the time that this was going on. You know, if David would have been out there with the other kings in the battle, we probably wouldn't have this 51st Psalm. We probably wouldn't have the events that happened if David had been where he should have been uh, when these things were going on. If David had been in the right place at the right time instead of staying home, uh, he wouldn't have opened himself up to the same temptation that happened. And that is a great warning to every one of us. If God has given you a place to be, if God has given you a job to do, if God has given you something to do, you had better be faithful to be there. If God has put people in your care and people underneath of you that you are to teach and train, you had better be a good example. You had better be right there in the war with them. You better be with them in that place. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself being open up to temptations that you didn't expect to come and you might find yourself falling headlong into those temptations and a lot of it could be avoided if we just be where we ought to be when we ought to be there. But one evening, David, he stays home and he wakes up and he goes and he walks out onto his balcony. It says he got up in the, in the evening, so evidently he had slept all afternoon and decided it was time to get up. And he goes out onto his balcony, and, and uh, of course, he's taking a stroll on his roof, and he sees a beautiful woman off in the distance bathing. And David looked, and he kept looking. And filled with lust, he asked the person uh, that was there with him, he said, who is this, this woman out here? And they say, well, that's Bathsheba, that's Uriah's wife. He's one of the people in your military. Well, the answer that David got right in that moment, he should have stopped right there, went no further, and turned away. And I don't intend this to be uh, saying that, that somehow all of us are better than David because all of us can be tempted with sin at any time and any place, and we must always be on guard. But this is an example for us to look at. And so David should have stopped right there when they said, hey, this is a man's wife. But David instead in that moment said, well, Uriah's away, so he calls for her to come to the palace. And he brings Bathsheba to the palace. And they have their affair. And they, they uh, have their affair that night. And he sends Bathsheba home. And uh, perhaps uh, David was saying to himself, no big deal. No one's ever going to know about it. Not a big deal. And he just sends her home. Well, sometime later, the news comes back. And, and she says to David, I am with child. 
Now, David, in his position, he decides that he needs to cover his sin. And so what he does is he calls in Uriah from off the front lines. He calls him into his office and says, uh, just to make it not seem odd, he says, Uriah, how's the war going? Give me an update on the battle that's going on out there. And uh, he, he does that. And, and then David says, hey, Uriah, while you're here, why don't you go home and spend some time with your wife? I think you need a little bit of relaxation. How about you go home and spend a little time with Bathsheba? And it says as he went that there was a mess of meat, a gift from the king that followed him. Uriah must have thought that's a little strange, but, you know, a gift from the king, okay. But it says that Uriah wouldn't go down to his house. He slept outside of the palace door. He refused to go home. Well, that didn't work, so David tried another thing. The next day or so, he, he said, let me try, let me give it another shot. So this time he invites Uriah over and he gets him drunk, stinking drunk, and says, now go home. Surely you'll go home and visit your wife now. But that didn't work either because Uriah wouldn't go home to his wife when all of his brothers and all the other military was out to war and fighting. He said, I can't go home when all of my brothers and all the people are out on the battlefield. I can't go home and relax and do this. So, uh, so he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And so he went out and he slept in the area with the other servants. And David decides, well, this isn't working. And so the next day he writes a letter to his general Joab. And in the letter... He actually sends it by the hand of Uriah. And this letter is actually a death sentence on Uriah. Because it says to Joab, when you get there, I want you to find the hottest part of the battle, the place where the strongest, most valiant men are, and I want you to put Uriah right there on the front line. And in the heat of the battle, I want everybody to pull back, and Uriah is to be killed. And what he wrote in that letter is exactly what happened. Joab did exactly that. Bathsheba got the news. She grieved over what had happened. And, and uh, then David swooped in and took her as his own wife. And she had their son. And David must have thought, I got away with it. I've done a good job. I've covered it up. No worries here. All the other kings do it. It's not that big a deal. But the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, it says at the end of that verse, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God had seen what David had done. And so God sends the Old Testament prophet Nathan to David to confront him about what has happened. And Nathan comes to David and he, he, he comes and knocks on the door. And the secretary buzzes into David and says, hey, Nathan the prophet's here to see you. You got a few minutes and yeah, send him on in. And uh, Nathan comes in and he tells him a story, he tells him a parable. He says to David, he says, there's a rich man in a city who had lots of wealth and flocks and lambs and goods. And then there was a poor man there also, and he only had one little lamb, which he loved very, very much. He raised it as his own. It ate at his table. It was like his own daughter. He said, David, that rich man had a traveler come through, had a guest come through. And rather than taking out of his own flocks to feed this guest, well, he went over and he took that poor man's lamb. He stole that one little lamb that the poor man loved, all that he had, and he killed it and he fed it to his guest. Well, that made David furious, what he heard. Let me read to you David's response in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. 
It says, and David's anger was kindled greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the land fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. In one of the most dramatic scenes in the Bible, Nathan points his finger in David's face and says, Thou art the man. David, you are the man. And in that moment, I believe it hit him like a hammer and shattered him. It was obvious who this rich man was. It was David. David went and took the poor man's lamb. He took Bathsheba from Uriah, had Uriah killed, took all that he had, that one that he loved, and had him killed. And God had brought David's sin to light is what happened. See, David, God sent Nathan, and David was suddenly in the presence of God, and in the presence of God, his sin was totally open and bare, and there was nothing hidden, and Nathan exposed everything that David had done. And so David had a response that he had to make at this point. He had to decide, well, do I, do I become angry and deny it and say, no, it didn't happen? Do I say, you don't know what you're talking about, Nathan? Do I point to my guards and say, get this guy out of here, put him down? Or do I confess and say, yes, I am the man? And David responded in the right way. And David said in verse 12, or verse 13 and 14 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord has put away thy sin, and thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemy of the Lord to blaspheme. And the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And so it's with that background, with that backdrop, that we come to the 51st Psalm. Because in that moment, David began to repent in the presence of God. His sin was bare and exposed in the presence of God, and David began to repent for what he had done. David was convinced thoroughly of his sin. He was convinced of it. So I want you to look at first, there is a cry of conviction. It's David's plea for mercy and forgiveness. And that's found in verses one and two. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, David was at the mercy of God's mercy. David had nowhere else to go. He was at the mercy of God's mercy. He'd sinned against God. His cry was on the basis of uh, not that he, he couldn't cry out to God on the basis of being a good person or somehow being the king. He had no place to go. He was at the mercy of God's mercy. He needed God's mercy. He sinned against God. He had murdered and committed adultery, and now he's confronted, and the only thing he can do is ask God for mercy. It's all he could do. Mercy is defined as the outward manifestation of pity. It assumes the need on the part of him who receives it. 
and resources adequate to meet the need on the part of him who shows it. David needed mercy, and God had the means to provide it. That's why he's asking God for mercy. Now, David's plea was on the basis of God's own character. See, here's the thing. David had known God. This was the sweet psalmist of Israel. This is the one that had spent time off in the fields uh, as a shepherd boy, spending time in the presence of God, spending time worshiping and loving God. He had spent time in the presence of God, and so he knew that God is a good God. He knew that God is a merciful God. He knew that God is rich in mercy and full of love and compassion. And so he makes his appeal and he says, oh God, have mercy on me according to your loving kindness because I know you are loving and I know that you are kind. And he says, according to the multitude of your tender mercies because I know that you are merciful. The basis upon which David is crying out. There's a man by the name of Archibald Simmons and he said this, Men are greatly terrified at the multitude of their sins, but here is comfort. Our God has multitudes of mercies. If our sins be a number as the hairs of our head, God's mercies are as the stars of the heavens. And as he is an infinite God, so his mercies are infinite. Yea, so far are his mercies above our sins as he himself is above us poor sinners." For the multitude of our sins, there is a multitude of God's mercies. And in that moment, David knew that that's exactly what he needed. I'm saying to you tonight, if you've sinned, don't appeal to your own goodness. Don't appeal to somehow you're going to fix it yourself. Appeal to the God in heaven who is rich in mercy and full of love and compassion and great in mercy. Appeal to the God who has the sufficient means to grant mercy to you. Appeal to God on the basis of who he is. Now, David knew that his sin needed to be removed. There at the end of verse 1, he says, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2 says, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, there are three words that are used here that refer to sin in this chapter. You're going to notice the word sin. You're going to notice the word transgression and iniquity. Three different ones. He uses all three of these. And sin speaks of missing the mark. Like when someone takes a bow, an arrow, and they shoot the arrow, and it doesn't quite hit the bullseye. Missing the mark. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what we're talking about there. Transgression, that includes aggressive actions. That's when you're rebellious and deliberately sinful. That's when, that's when the, the police officer is across the street and the guy sees him and blows through the stop sign anyway. That's a transgression. Deliberate. Seen him right there and did it anyway. And then we have iniquity, and that is the working of sin. That is the working of sin in someone's life. That is to continue in unrepentant sin, and it often leads to greater and greater and greater sins. It's like you walk into one door, and there's a whole bigger room full of more doors. And you go find another one, you open that door, and it opens up into an even bigger, bigger room with more doors. And it's just an endless supply of sins that you can go to one after another. That's what we're talking 
talking about an iniquity. And so David is under conviction of God. Can you see that in that moment when Nathan comes in and God speaks to him and says, you are the man, David is now under conviction for his sin. His sins have been brought to the light and David wanted them gone. He said, I've got to get these out of here. He said, blot out my transgressions. Erase the record like uh, you would to write off a debt. Erase the record of my rebellious offenses. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. See, David could see that mountain of sin that, that he had been working in his life. He could see that mountain of destructive sin that had been coming uh, to pass in his life. And he says, he says, wash me until there is not a trace of it left. Get it out of me, Lord. See, David is coming to hate sin for what sin is. David says, I want it gone. Cleanse me from my sin. He's saying, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, whatever you have to do, Lord, get this out of me. He said, I don't want to have a speck in your eyes. And he, needed, he knew that he needed his sin removed and only God can wash us. Now, I want you to see David's confession of sin. It's a cry of repentance, a cry of repentance. The book of Hosea, chapter 14, verse 2, says this. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips or the praises of our mouth. Take with you words to the Lord. Dad said it right when he says repentance is grieving away from sin into the arms of Jesus Christ. It is where you're grieving away from the sins that you're doing, you're turning away from the life that you're living in, and you're turning to God, leaving it all behind you. That's what repentance is, and that's what David's doing. So listen to his confession. Listen to David bring words to God in verses 3 through 6. He says this, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. So sin must be seen for what it is. It must be confessed and it must be forsaken. David said, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David was confessing himself guilty in the sight of God. His sin was hanging over his head. He said, it's ever before me. Everywhere that I go, I see my sin is there. I cannot escape it no matter how hard I try. Every place that I look, my sin is always constantly hounding me. It's following me. He said, ever is my sin before me. And David says, I'm done hiding it. I'm done making excuses for it. I'm humble now in the presence of God. And in humble repentance, he is making his full confession of sin to God. He's seeing sin for what it is. He's confessing it, and he is forsaking it. And I want you to notice this also. Sin is primarily an offense against God. That's what he says in verse 4. He says, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And you say, David, how could you say that? You, I mean, you sinned against everybody, David. You sinned against 
Bathsheba and Uriah against the kingdom, against yourself, against everybody that you know. Basically, you sinned against everybody. How can you say against thee and thee only have I sinned? Well, it's the fact that when we sin, we're sinning against God's laws. We're breaking God's laws. And you know who's going to be the final judge of those laws that were broken? It's going to be God. And so when we sin, we break his laws. When we do it, we do it in his sight. And ultimately, God is the one who will bring justice to pass for those sins. And I'm saying to you tonight and all of us tonight, don't wait around for God to give you justice because that is not what you want. You want mercy. Mercy and God is rich in mercy and ready to give it. Hallelujah. You know, I think if we remembered that we're always in the presence of God, we would change the way that we do things sometimes. I mean, we've all at some time in our life been doing something and didn't realize somebody else was watching or, and you were embarrassed, right? I mean, I remember uh, just last year we had like a, a snowstorm uh, and there was a tow truck driver that had, was right out in front of my house and he was getting ready to pull a car up from down in the, in the dip. And as soon as he got out, as soon as he opened that door and got out, his feet went straight out from underneath him, horizontal, and he landed on his back. And I said, oh, Lord, the guy's dead. I gotta go see, and then just like that, he sprung up, and the first thing he did was he looked, didn't want anybody to know that it happened. Anybody else see that? I sure hope not. <laughs> but I saw it, and I laughed a little bit. Oh, you went up too. Don't give me that. Once he was okay, I mean, I had to giggle at least a little bit. <laughs> Don't tell him. But sometimes we, I think we would change what we do when, if we would think about the fact that God is always there, always watching, always seeing what we're doing. There's never a time that God isn't seeing what's going on. You know, like when you, your, your dog is the sweetest thing in the world when you're there with it. But when you leave for a couple hours, your little puppy, and you come home, and there's bits of fibers and foam and buttons and shoes and you come around the corner and the whole couch, what used to be a couch, is a pile of foam laying there. And you go a little further around the corner and the dog's like this. Because he knows I would not have done that if he was here. <laughs> it's the same thing with us. If we thought of God in terms of that always being in his presence, I think we would change how we do things. Now, I want to say this. Mankind is sinful by nature. We are sinful by nature. And David points that out in verses 5 and 6. He says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Man isn't a sinner because he sins. He sins because he's a sinner. <laughs> It's not because you sin, you sin because you are a sinner. And that's the difference. By nature, every person, when they're born into this world, you bear the mark of old sinful Adam. You've got the old nature of Adam. You've got that old sinful nature in you. And David was saying, behold, I was shapen in iniquity. From the very moment of my conception, I've got this twisted, wicked nature. He wasn't making an excuse for himself, but he says, I am rotten to the core. He's saying, God, to the very core and by my very nature, 
I am sinful. And so are we. The Bible says, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And Paul said in Romans, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. But God desires to change our nature. God desires to change our nature. Verse 6, he says, Behold, thou desires truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. See, David was saying, Sin is working deep in me, but God wants to work deeper. Sin is working inside of David, but, but God is saying, David, you're mine, and I want to bring you out of that place. I want you to be a, a man of truth and a man of wisdom. And though sin is doing its work, God is saying, my desire is to bring you out of that sin and to get you back on track and get you back in the way that you ought to be going. God wants to change our very nature. That's what he's saying. And so David... Praise for cleansing and restoration. Look at verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, hyssop was a little plant, a leafy plant that grew, that grew on rocks in damp places. And it was used in connection with sacrifices and the sprinkling of blood. It was used in the cleansing of defiled persons, such as uh, lepers. Uh, it was used the night of the Passover in Egypt when God said, you're to, strike, you're to uh, kill the lamb and strike the blood on the doorpost. And they used hyssop to strike the blood on the doorpost. It was for the application of the blood, and that was whereby they hid behind the blood of the lamb, and they found safety. It speaks of redemption, really. And all of those things were pointing to the perfect lamb of God, Jesus Christ. All of the old sacrifices and cleansing, all of those things in some fashion is pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. And so we know also when we look at the New Testament, the Bible says in whom, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. And so what's happening is David knew that he couldn't cleanse himself. David knew it was going to take a work of God. And I think even with an eye of faith, he was believing God to cleanse him in that way that he would do with the perfect sacrifice, which all of these other sacrifices were pointing to. I think David was in a way looking forward to that, that God himself was going to bring the cleansing, that God himself was going to bring that cleansing. And so David was saying, if I'm going to be cleansed, it's going to be cleansed by the blood of a person perfect sacrifice. David was saying, I know that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so David says, the only way that I'm going to be clean is if God himself applies the blood uh, to my heart. If God himself purges me with hyssop and applies the blood to my heart, he says, and then I will be clean and I will be whiter than snow. David says, the only way I'm going to be clean is through the blood of the lamb. Let me tell you this. There is no remedy for sin outside of the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no remedy. There is no cleansing. Sin has ruined and defiled every one of us, but the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from all sins. That's what God does. Charles Spurgeon once said, God could make, it, could make him as if he had never sinned at all, 
Such is the power of the cleansing work of God upon the heart that he can restore innocence to us and make us as if we had never been stained with transgression at all. Amazing, isn't it? God can totally and completely cleanse us. The old hymn says, there is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. I read a story earlier today about a man by the name of Robert Bruce of Scotland. And he was leading his men uh, to gain independence from England. And it was near the end of the conflict, and the English wanted to keep him, uh, they wanted to capture him and keep him from assuming the throne, which he was rightfully uh, entitled to. And so they actually got a hold of his own bloodhounds that he had, and they put him on the trail to, to chase Robert down. And so the hounds were on their trail, and when they started to get close, they could hear the sound of these dogs bellowing as they were getting close. And the person with Robert says, uh, he's hearing the dogs coming, and he, he says, we're done for. Uh, we don't have any place to go. See, they're trying to capture Robert. And, and, and Robert says, well, that's okay. And so he, he gets, he starts on his path towards where he knows there's a river. And he goes up to the river and he jumps into the river and swims under and he comes out just a little ways up on the other side and gets out on the bank. Just a few minutes later, the dogs come and they get right to where he was and, uh, and they, they won't go any further. And the English are trying to push him on and trying to get him to go, but they couldn't go any further. Why? Because they lost the scent. It was gone. It was washed down, this, down the river, and the trail was broken, and the stream had carried the scent away. And it wasn't just a few days later that Robert received the crown. In the same way, our sin is chasing us. Our sin is hounding us. It is running after us. And we have no place to go. We have no resort. We have no way to escape. It is coming for us. But if we as sinners will run and plunge ourselves into the river of the blood of Christ Jesus, we can find cleansing. And those sins of our past that hound us, that worry us, that burden us, they'll all be washed away. And we can come out on the other side at peace and safe because of the blood of Jesus. Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Repentance can bring an end to our mourning. Can bring an end to our mourning. Look at verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. David was saying, I am feeling the brokenness of sin. I'm feeling the brokenness of sin, the conviction of the Holy, you know, when the Holy Spirit begins to convict you for your sin, if you're, if you're one of his, he begins to grind, and it is not pleasant when God begins to deal with you. But the work that God was doing in David was ultimately going to result in his joy and gladness being restored. It was going to result in a good thing. And there may be times that God will bring difficulties in your life in order to get you back into the place of fellowship from which you have left. There may be troubling things that come in your life to bring you back to the place that you should go. There may be things that are very difficult to bear. David was saying the bones which you have broken. God, you have broken my very bones. But God may have to bring those things into our lives sometimes to get us back where we ought to be. 
I, I heard that, that oftentimes a shepherd, if he has a particularly uh, bad sheep <laughs> that won't follow directions, will actually do that. Will actually break the sheep's leg to keep him from getting into mischief. But the whole time that his bone is broken, he sets it back and mends it. He carries that sheep on his shoulders. Maybe you've seen pictures of that where there would be a shepherd carrying a sheep on his shoulders. And the whole time he's doing that, he's doing it for a good reason, and that is to get that sheep back on track, but actually to protect him from the danger that he was getting into. And that's what David is speaking of here. He's saying, God, what you've done is not enjoyable, but I know all along the way you're going to carry me and keep me, and you're with me. Then David prays for pardon of his sin. Look at verse 9. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. See, over and over, David is asking for the cleansing of sin. He's asking for forgiveness and restoration, and he prays that God won't even look upon his sin. Don't even look at my sin because I'm afraid that your anger will burn and you'll have to bring judgment upon me. But instead, blot them out and make them as if they never even existed. And then David prays for a new heart. And that's the beautiful thing, that God can make all things new. Look at verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That is to say, a steadfast spirit. The word here, create, is the same as you find in Genesis chapter 1, when God created everything. It means he brought something out of nothing. And David is saying, I am nothing, I have nothing, I can do nothing. God, take this wickedness in my heart and create in me something brand new. God, make something brand new in my heart. He's saying, I'm so filthy, I'm so vile, I'm so wicked, I'm going to need more than just a remade heart. I need a total and completely new heart. And this was looking forward to that day that we experience in this, in this day and age, in the New Testament church, where God will give you a brand new heart. He will give you a new heart. He'll give you a heart that desires right things, that makes you to want to do right, that loves righteousness and hates evil. God will give you a brand new heart. Every born-again believer, every born-again child of God receives exactly that. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Are you still with me tonight? I'm going to wrap this up pretty quick. I know it's a lot to take in, but I think it's necessary because God wants to speak these things to our heart. We don't always get the excitement of things. Sometimes we've got to have a few bones broken, but God needs to get us back to where we need to be. And when, and when I preach this, I don't just preach it to you guys, preach it to myself. I study it for myself. I learn it for myself. It's for all of us to take into account, to know. And David prays for restored and continued fellowship with God. Verse 11, he says, cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. See, David loved the presence of God. He had known the joy of being in the presence of God. Just like I said earlier, he sang to the Lord. He worshiped the Lord, but his sin had separated him from that fellowship, separated him from the presence of God. And David wanted restoration. I believe he longed to be renewed 
renewed. I believe he longed to be restored. I believe he wanted more than anything, again, to sit out maybe on those fields and just sing a song to the Lord from his heart, just in that private fellowship and, and, uh, and in the presence of God. I believe he wanted that more than anything in this moment. Oh, God, how I miss your presence. I believe that's what his desire was. And then he says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now, let me clarify something here. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon these people for a particular reason. For, uh, for instance, Samson and the judges, he would come upon them for a particular work to empower them to do things. And I believe what David was referencing here was actually what he saw happen to Saul. When God took the Spirit of God from Saul, he saw Saul spiral in a downhill progression, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And David was saying, oh, God, don't take take your anointing. Don't take the presence. Don't take the spirit of God from, from me because I've seen what happens when that happens and I do not want you to do that to me. See, that's different from the New Testament believer. The New Testament believer, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. What a blessing that is. We may grieve him, we may quench him, but he does not leave us. Let me give you a scripture that, that says exactly that. John 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says this. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit here, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him. For he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And the Bible says also that we are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So this prayer that David prays in this particular spot is not a New Testament prayer. It's not something that you should be asking the Lord for. The Holy Spirit comes and when he comes, he comes to stay. He comes to abide and so David prays to be restored now. He prays for the joy of his salvation to be restored. Look at verse 12. He says, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Now listen, church, this is important. I was praying about this this, this afternoon and the Lord just really impressed this upon my heart. The joy of our salvation David had several months past where he was groaning and grieving over his sin. He didn't have the joy. He didn't have the song in his heart. He didn't have the prayer in his heart. He was sitting in silence. He was grieving because he was away from God. He was disobedient to God. He was being hateful to God. He was not following the leading of the presence of God. And every day, he was feeling the coldness of a life separated from God. Every day, he was without joy without life. He was just existing. He was just there. He was just uh, doing his daily routine, but he had no joy that should have accompanied salvation. He had no joy. And I'm speaking to some people maybe here tonight or online watching later, and you may be like David. You've sinned, and you're far from God, and it's been a long time since you've enjoyed the joy of your salvation. It's been a long time since you got away with God, and you enjoyed the presence 
presence of God coming upon you and you begin to cry out to God and love him for the cross and love him for who he is and love him for the salvation that he's given you. It's been a long time and there's some people that are cold. They're cold. They're ice cold and God says, I want to restore to you the joy of your salvation. How long are you going to live this way? How long are you going to grieve me? How long are you going to not live up to the fullness of the blessings that I've given? How long are you going to stay this way? How long are you going to not have a song in your heart? How long are you going to let other people down by not following and doing what you ought to be? How long are you not going to come and take your place and be with the people of God, encouraging your brothers and sisters? How long are you going to let it go this way? I think tonight it's time for some of us, like the prodigal son that's in the far country, and he spent all that he had all of his inheritance, and he finds himself in the hog pen. And he's living that way, and he's eating the food that the hogs eat. And finally, there's a day when he comes to his senses, and he says, I don't have to live this way anymore. He says, I know where my father's house is. I don't have to stay in this place of devastation. I don't have to stay in this place of sin. I don't have to stay in this place of iniquity and destruction. I'm going to arise and I'm going to go to my father's house and I know that he's going to receive me with love and compassion. I'm saying to you it's time to get up. Come to your senses. Get out of that hog pen. Get out of that place of sickness. Get out of your sins. Get out of that despondent place and come back home to the Father's house. It's time to come home. How much longer are you going to let yourself live this way? How much longer are you going to go without the joy of salvation when God is standing ready at any moment watching for you to come back over the hillside? said, I'm just waiting for you to come home. That's it. Just waiting for you to come home. And that's what David did. God shook David and David came home. Is God going to have to shake us to get us to come home? Is God going to have to break bones? At what point do we, do we say we've had enough? At what point do we say, okay, God, you win? I sure don't want him to have to do that. The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. He'll, he'll bring you up. If, if we'll humble ourselves, don't make God have to do it. And then here's the result of cleansing and restoration, verse 13. Then, everybody say then. When? Then. That's right. I tricked some of you with that. <laughs> then will I teach transgressors thy ways. And sinners shall be converted unto thee. The key word there is what we said, then. After the repentance, after the returning to Christ, after coming up out of the hog pen, that's when you're going to be a good witness for Christ. 
It's then when you get up out of that place of filth and come home and begin to take your place where God is expecting you to be. Don't expect God's blessing if you're unfaithful, if you're in and you're out and you're not consistent in your service to God. Don't expect God's blessing if you're off in the far country. Don't expect that you're going to be a good witness or that you're going to see people coming to Christ. Don't expect that. There will be no revival until there is first repentance. And David says, then, that's what I want. I want to come to God honestly and say, okay, Lord, I'm ready for then. I'm ready for then. Because a restored person, he can teach and warn others. He can say, you know what, I was in this pit, and I'm going to tell you how I got there, and I'm going to tell you that so that you don't go to the same one that I was in. They'll say, you know what, God has been merciful to me, and I'm going to tell you about him so that you can know the same God that I know that's been merciful and gracious and kind to me. It's just a simple testimony. Every one of us have a then. After we came out of it, we have a then. Then we can begin to tell people about where we came from, how we come up out of the horrible pit, and he put our feet upon a rock. He brought us out of the miry clay, and he put a new song in our mouth, a song of praise to God. Every one of us have that. And if we let God, if we let God bring us back into that place, God can turn your life into a mighty testimony. And at that point, you're going to begin to be able to teach people and grow them and show them the right way. And you're going to be able to lead people to Christ Jesus, where they can find the hope of salvation just like you have. That's when it's going to happen. In verses 14 through 17, let's read that. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praises. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. God can remove the sentence of death and restore life to us. David says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. David had committed the sin of murder and adultery. And you know, there was no sacrificial provision for that. David couldn't just go out and get a lamb or something and take care. There wasn't a provision for that. That was capital punishment. You do that, you are dead. I think it's amazing that God said, you're not going to die, David. The very start of the, of the message tonight, we read that where God said, you're not going to die. David had some consequences for his sin, absolutely. There were some very many tragic things that happened as a result of this. But David himself didn't die. And what happened was, and I think that's part of the reason why David says uh, the sacrifices, or he says, thou desires not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. He was saying, even if there was one that I could bring to you, there's not one for the sins that I've done. I'm going to have to be pardoned by you, God. There's only one that can remove the death sentence from our life, and that is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ himself can remove the sentence of death that we have brought upon ourselves. There is no sacrifice. There is no thing that we can bring. There is no thing that we can do except to do exactly the same thing that David did. He came before the presence of God. He's seen himself exceedingly sinful. He said, I have no excuse, but I'm trusting in the fact that you are merciful. I'm trusting in the fact that you are gracious and kind. And now I believe, Jesus, you died on the cross for me. You took my death on the cross. I believe that you rose again from the grave victorious. And today I say, oh God, take this sentence of death off of me. I want to live forever and ever with you. And the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, he will do exactly that for you. Hallelujah. And then finally, a life that is wrecked by sin can be rebuilt. Look at verses 18 and 19. Chris, go ahead and make your way up here. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. David was the king, and his sin brought lots of damage, no doubt, to the kingdom that he was ruling. And he says, rebuild the walls. That's a way of saying, rebuild the glory. Bring back the glory of the city. I made a mess of things. I've been a reproach. Oh, God, I've made a mess of my life. It's just a bunch of rubble. Rebuild the walls. If you've messed up big time, you can rebuild. If you've run it, if you've blown it like David, you can rebuild. There is life after that failure. In fact, there's wonderful things that can be done. You're that testimony. You can be that witness for Christ when you come out of that place. It's not to say that the thing was good, but God can make a bad thing look good. And God can bring good. So I hope something I've spoken to you tonight has resonated with you. I know without a doubt that this is the message God had given me to bring, whether you like it or not. And you got it. And so now it's like David. What are you going to do with it? You might feel a little bit like a finger in your face tonight. You are the man. But that's a good thing. Because if God does that to you, be like David. Be tender. Turn towards him. Grieve away from sin into the arms of Jesus. Because to harden and to go the other way will result in sure destruction. And so we're going to have a song tonight. If you need to pray, you're welcome to do that in these altars. You can do it wherever you are at home. Or I would definitely suggest to you to get away with God tonight and say, Lord, is there any offense in my life that needs to be addressed and come willingly to him before any bones need to be broken. And God will bring that joy and that blessing back to you. Would you stand with me tonight?
We're going to have a song.